G'day and welcome to another episode of Spectrum Uncensored. Today I have with me Kath from Melbourne in Victoria. Thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me, Jamie. No worries. Could you tell me a little bit about your profession and your business? Yeah, so I am a speech pathologist, which I think now we're starting to call speech therapist. Uh, try to get the pathology out of speech pathology. Um, and I suppose, um, not that we really can technically specialise, but if anything, my area of specialty would be neurodiversity affirming practice, which is very much, I suppose, a new part of speech pathology um, and something that's only just come into our guidelines for working with autistic people um, and at this stage has not been fully defined and a lot of speech pathologists are trying to find out what neurodiversity affirming practice is, what it means, what it looks like and it's become a I guess a really big buzzword um, in the profession so um, yeah that's become I guess my uh, my area of interest and my thing and I since uh, started a sort of a side gig business um, and a website which is called Spoons Advocacy. So if you want to check me out, I'm www.spoonsadvocacy.com. And my name's Kath Fernando. And um, yeah, so I guess that's that's an introduction to who I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I love that. It's, it is, um, I, I have noticed that it is more um, and more, I'm seeing it more frequently now, the, the neuroaffirming and all that kind of thing, um, just in every aspect, you know, from psychology to speech pathology to mm. occupational therapy. Um, and even but parenting, we're sort of talking about neuroaffirming, parenting, neuroaffirming, teaching. You can have neuroaffirming anything, really. It's just taking on the values of the neurodiversity movement and applying them to X, applying them to, to businesses and companies and autistic people are everywhere and neurodivergent <laughs> people beyond that are, are also everywhere in every We're profession everywhere. in every walk of life <laughs> wherever there are people We're neurodivergent people exist <laughs> we're coming for you we're there i say hiding in plain sight a lot of the time hiding in plain sight <laughs> that's true that's true and what what does neuroaffirming mean to you like what do you kind of define it as yeah if look, you had to to me i in a nutshell i'd say it's that all brains are equal that every neurotype is valid, that there are not better brains. Like neurotypical is not better than autistic or someone with tics or someone with bipolar. Every brain has a valid place in this world, has a value to the broader society and to the people that love that person. There are no better brains and worse brains. And we don't see these differences as disorders but I'm going to be really clear that sometimes these different brains can be disabling, disabled, um, and that that's not a bad word. And so there's this really fine line between disorder, disabled. Disorder means there is something wrong with you. You are not okay as you are, I guess. And disabled means my interaction, my brain that is different in combination with the society, the environment, the attitudes, the sensory environment and so on that I live in combined together, I can experience disability and disability is experienced differently by every single person. So two people with autism might have a very different experience of disability with that. There are autistic people who are fine. <laughs> All right. It's not Oh, it's not a bad thing. If you have 
for whatever reason, be it luck, be it culture that you live in and maybe not Western culture, I don't know, you might have an ex- autistic people who are happily married, successful in their business, with their tribe and actually fine. <laughs> now, you know, that's not what you hear about very often. It's normally the serious and the significant disability, but we don't judge the autistic person who's doing fine and the autistic person who's really struggling um, we don't cause class difference. We don't go high functioning, low functioning, because none of that is relevant. Your so-called high functioning or your what we sometimes call high masking autism, people, there are people um, we call high masking, late diagnosed, hard to tell they're autistic, neurotypical people couldn't pick them. Other autistics might work it out. <laughs> but your Definitely. high masking autistic people actually have the higher suicide rate actually have the mental health difficulties that burden is born and there are people who cannot mask um, who don't have the ability to read the neurotypicals or work them out as a secondary <laughs> and that's okay too they're a different disability there's a different experience of disability for someone who needs more outside help um, but what you can't judge what someone's experience is going to be everybody's autism looks different everybody's other i've got to talk about neurodiversity beyond autism everybody's different neurotype has a different impact on their life depending on circumstances privilege is such a big thing if you've got money you can pay adhd tax (laughs) for example (laughs) that's a real thing right if you can't be bothered cooking but you can order some uber eats Suddenly, you're at a massive advantage, right? You've got to look at privilege, education, society. So many factors impact um, a neurodivergent person. Just really, really quickly, I do talk about autism and ADHD most of all. That's because I identify as ADHD. And it's also because autism started the neurodiversity movement. That is an autistic-led movement. The ideals and the theories and the autistic-led research is fundamental to that movement and I don't necessarily know as much about other neurotypes so I don't necessarily know how to do speech pathology with the full view of the dyscalculia community because I just haven't heard from them there is a lot of talk about stuttering and neurodiversity um, there are people who are absolutely against treating stuttering so that's important for speech pathologists to know why is stuttering as a kind of masking so I'm listening to them but it's not my lived experience but I'm listening and I'm just trying to learn from them and explaining to my clients who stutter you know, there's another school of thought that tells us that we shouldn't be working on this and it'll explain as much as I know to them. But aut- autism and ADHD have big communities and a lot of presence on social media. And the autist- autism community have um, a collective set of ideologies such as the social model of disability and the idea of the person not being the problem but society being the barrier such yep. as the double empathy theory by an autistic researcher called Milton in 2012. I don't know all the details about the researchers. The theory of monotropism, which a number of great leading autistic um, researchers have come up with this idea of that sort of looking into information and going next level, next level, next level, that de- attention to detail that is quite common in autism and ADHD. Um, and uh, uh, the double empathy theory, I've said, the theory of monotropism and other things that are not coming into my mind right now that are, um, you know, uh, autistic um, culture and the idea of spoon theory and all of these things that come from autistic culture, I incorporate into my speech pathology practice. Um, 
and in a ADHD community, which is sort of coming through and there's so much overlap, autism, ADHD. So, the, so I talk about autism, ADHD the most is what I'm saying, but I don't know as much about other neurotypes, but they belong in neurodiversity as well. But I will talk about autism, ADHD the most um, as it's what we know the most about. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it, I love the, the whole the whole like you know everybody's brain is important because we wouldn't have a lot of things if say autism didn't exist like a lot oh. of the great inventors and stuff were fully autistic like or oh, ADHD absolutely. even like um, oh you can pick them you know yeah, Einstein like, and all these guys I mean we wouldn't still know about um the you know time being a constant and gravity being a yeah. phenomenon of space time and all of that that I mean we no one's proved Einstein's autistic which we, we just know but um <laughs> I did hear one autistic person say like every time something was invented that was an autistic person so we were all banging rocks together and the autistic guy goes look I've made fire because I spent so much time on my sticks <laughs> I've looked at this in so much detail I realized I could go the next level so you know yeah. it's just a bit of a joke but we reckon autistic people have been the ones firing changes yeah. in the world and that makes so much sense yeah yeah and you do you look at people like Steve Jobs for example and mm. you know you've got Elon Musk I mean Elon Musk mm. has said a few things where I've gone, oh, like things like, as you were saying, high functioning, low functioning, when he came out and he said, yeah. I'm autistic, but I'm the good kind of autistic. I was and like, look, that's mm. just ignorance. That's just ignorance. <laughs> I, that's just like, until you, if you start to understand the principles of the neurodiversity movement, that is something you have to learn. You don't automatically yep. know that just because you're autistic. Like, I didn't even know I was autistic before I started this whole thing. I started to work out I was ADHD because that has a much bigger sort of functional impact for me. But, yep. like, just learning about it doesn't mean um, – sorry, just being neurodivergent does not mean you understand the neurodiversity movement, the theories, all of that stuff has, is to be learned. So one of the things I did for Speech Pathology Australia, which is like the speech pathology governing body, is um, I authored this module called Introduction to Neurodiversity Affirming Practice for Speech Pathologists, and it's something available to speech pathologists to sort of learn online in a, in a set of modules. And the research I did going into that was – everything I could possibly learn about the neurodiversity movement, its principles, its key autistic researchers that have come over time. Now, every autistic person doesn't adhere to all of those ideas and values or even know about them. Um, so yeah. when you have clients that come in and they say they're autistic or their, their child is autistic, I like just have to introduce them to all of these concepts in the first place and say, look, this yeah. is how I work. I do neurodiversity affirming practice. We don't see autism as a disorder. We don't use the DSM definition of autism. Not that it's especially wrong, it's the wording, it's the abnormal this and rigid that and um, obsessive, you know, all of the, the words. One of the activities that I do in the Speech Pathology Australia module that I wrote is you have to go through the DSM manual and click on all the negative words. So words like abnormal and yep. rigid and um, uh, Every, every sort of negative word and oh my god so many like it's a, every second word yeah. and the autistic community we understand that these things about autism and I use to define autism I use a, a, a definition by an autistic psychologist called Matt Lowry who's got this sort of circle of different traits that you sort of go around and it's sort of interoception differences and it's communication differences and what that looks like and we still um 
still kind of a lot of it is the stuff that's in the DSM, but we look at it from an autistic perspective, from a neutral perspective. So yeah, autism is associated with big feelings um, and energy levels that fluctuate. So you just might go to a party and you might, you know, um, navigate that socially okay if you're high masking, but you might be exhausted afterwards. You might need a day to recover. <laughs> so yep. it's fluctuating energy levels and things like that associated with autism that um, and the DSM might not pick up because it's just looking at autism through a neurotypical perspective and looking down on it like it's a bad thing. Um, yeah. The other thing is autistic joy, things like stims and what we call, uh, sorry, spins, uh, special interests, which again is a bit of a, I think we've reclaimed that as calling it a spin, but a special interest, you know, you say, Einstein had a special interest in physics, boys and girls. You know, he's a master of physics. So special interest gives you this expertise. And that part of that monotropism is a great joy in discovering information, going next level and next level and next level down that tunnel of finding out more about your thing that you're interested in. Autism is not a negative way to be. We're not yeah. suffering for it. We can be extremely joyful, especially if we're in an environment that allows us to thrive. So autism isn't necessarily a bad thing. And the other thing the DSM does is it has a real bias towards meltdown, bad behavior, as they call it. Now, meltdown is not a necessarily a natural part of autism. It's a distress. So yeah. it's biased towards people who are distressed. So you're happy autistics <laughs> or young kids that haven't been traumatized yet get undiagnosed misdiagnosed because they're looking for things that are negative and extreme and they're looking at all of these things that we get really gaslit um older people who might have a successful career and and a marriage and all that and then the psychologist going oh no you can't be autistic because you're not not functioning because of it for a start you don't know what difficulties that person has had to get to where they are have they worked twice as hard have they had to mask really hard have they been exhausted and had periods of burnout before then they might appear to be fine and they might actually be fine they might have come to by luck I say and it been an environment that really works for them and that they've thrived in and then realize oh, but I am autistic and then have that that gaslit that gaslighting by professionals is really upsets the autistic community so they say that self-diagnosis is therefore valid if you've spent enough time learning about autism and spending time with the autistic community and you know you're autistic we're good with that you can say you're autistic and you know you are and people don't come to that without a lot of thought you don't just say you don't do it to be sexy or cool yeah it's just you pretty much you know fact. you're autistic and you say no I, well I mean some people are sort of saying that now but it really is something that you've had a lot of experiences of having to mask having you know misunderstanding the neurotypicals maybe um in certain ways at certain times in your life you might have, it might have just happened at high school or it might just be happening throughout your life it's this constant um realize so we'd say that one of the things about autism is non-intuitive reading of allistic communication skills that means that you don't read the neurotypicals naturally but you learn them as a second language and so the high maskers are like anthropologists they've watched the neurotypicals they've watched all their movies and they're like oh yeah i i get you now and i maybe i get your jokes as well i've, I've worked all that out and so i'm you know no one can tell i'm autistic anymore but doesn't mean you're not anymore right yeah yeah you've just worked all that out and um whereas the double empathy theory when you're meeting your autistic people your tribe what's happening is older late diagnosed people realize all their best friends and their 
person they married and everything else are also <laughs> are also neurodivergent, ADHD, ADHD. The pipeline. <laughs> yeah, and we all get along and, you know, we were joking about before the start of the podcast that the diagnostic criteria should just be put all the people in the waiting room and if they all get along, then they're autistic. <laughs> you know? yeah. Straight away. like. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, that's the frustrating part is, as you were saying, there's a lot of neg- negative connotations and stuff like that t- when it comes to diagnosing people as autistic. But you, they don't say that about neurotypicals. Like if they worded mm. like what a neurotypical is, the same, like if they, sorry, mm. if they, if they worded what neurodivergent is in a, yep. like the same way they talk about what being neurotypical is, it would just mm. be, you know, talking about the positives. Like you see all the time people saying, um, instead of bossy, say they're a leader, things like that, you That's know, like right. really yes. like flipping that it and making language. it a positive thing. It's so true. The way, the language we use on a child, it defines how people view that child. If you're starting to say they've got abnormal communication skills, abnormal ability to have a two-way conversation, you go, oh, they have an autistic communication style that talks around what they're trying to say, that goes on a tangent, that comes in at a different angle. And it's a beautiful, creative sort of way. And the info dump. Like a lot of <laughs> autistic people don't mind an info dump. I've learned so much stuff about trains from some of my little clients. I'm like, hey, this is the diesel engine, such a little three-year-olds. I'm like, that is amazing. You know all that. And I love it. I'm like, tell me more. I'm like, I actually find, because an info dump is often really interesting because the person who's doing the info dump is passionate. You don't do yep. an info dump in a bad mood. You do an info dump when you're so excited to share some information about something. And just on that thought about the, the neurotypical diagnosis, there's this lady on TikTok I absolutely love called My Favourite Joe on TikTok and she does this sort of role reversal. Have you seen it? Role reversal diagnosis. So she's got this one called Diagnosed Neurotypical Spectrum Disorder (laughs) and so it's herself in like a white coat and she's got herself, you know, she flips between herself in the white coat with a, a, you know, um, with a, what do you call that, thing that you write on. The, oh, the notepad, yep. Notepad. You know what? My ADHD. Okay. And then she flips between that and then herself as the, the parent. And so she's going, I'm really sorry to tell you, but little Johnny's got neurotypical spectrum disorder. And mum's there. Then she's got herself as a mum going, what? But we've done everything right. We didn't vaccinate him. <laughs> and then she's gone, um, you know, I've got to try and remember it all because I've shown it to a lot of parents sort of as a bit of a joke. And then, you know, and then she goes, yeah, unfortunately, little Johnny will have incredibly dull sense of all of his senses he will never be able to feel the tags inside of his clothes his sense of vision and hearing and touch will all be entirely average he will only be able to think entirely inside the square you know and then the mum's gone but that's terrible I mean is there any positives for little Johnny she goes oh yeah there's tons of positive but that's not how we diagnose kids you know (laughs) we might have to give him caffeine to get him moving like the other kids oh it's just hilarious she's so funny (laughs) and actually I have a lot of her videos that I show my like some teenage age clients that really laugh at neurotypical social skills and go you know she's got this whole one um you know it's a great session then you got the kids laughing and she goes you know um neurotypical spectrum disorder neurotypical people can't tell the truth and she'll go do we do you like my haircut and the neurotypical person will lie they will go 
oh, it looks great. She says, autistic person will go, mm, looks the same. <laughs> and then you go, and then your neurotypical person will say, hmm, I'm hungry. And they go, okay, that's interesting. Um, and what they're really trying to say is, let's go out for lunch. And she goes, why can't they say, let's go out for lunch? And, you know, so she really sort of pulls up that neurotypical, she calls it coping strategies, the two-way conversation. So they have to talk yep. about the weather and they have to talk about, we call this small talk. We have to talk about the weather. We have to take it in turns. And it's just hilarious because when you look at it from an autistic point of view, the neurotypicals seem to be doing really odd things. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, it's like, who's the weird ones? Who's the weird ones? And it's all about perspective taking. I mean, you will hear exactly. a lot of a lot of my clients, the parents, they'll often say, "Oh, neurotypicals, they're so boring." Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, you know, that's just that's another perspective, and it's a valid perspective, you know. Um, so a lot of the work that I do, I do a lot around friendships and social skills are my kind of main thing, but I do it really differently to the way speeches used to do this stuff. Firstly, understanding autistic communication differences and what they actually look like and how that's different to neurotypical. So really knowing that I think is really important for your neuroaffirming speech pathologist so that you can just see that that difference and understand what those differences are so you can explain them explicitly to autistic people. But the other thing is the two-way perspective taking where's the effort from the neurotypicals to understand the autistic perspective? So we're going into, so neurotypical parents, neurotypical teachers and classrooms, we have to sort of go in and go, oh, well, that's an info dump. So what you need to do is um, you want them to not info dump in the middle of the class because you're trying to get the other kids to concentrate. So how can we meet that as a two-way street instead of just telling little Johnny to shut up? Um, yep. Because he's disabled. <laughs> right so why does he have to make all the effort to be social make other people feel comfortable why isn't anyone understanding little johnny so I say a teacher like if he's happy to tell you about trains you know you don't even have to listen to that you could let him talk about trains and you can smile and nod so even um for some of my clients I'm like okay is this an info dump and they go it's just an info dump I just want to tell you you don't have to listen you know you don't always have to be 100% tuned into the info dump as a parent for example. Yep. Um, yeah, so it's just knowing that that's a thing and we call it autistic love language. So if someone's info jumping yes. on you, it means I love you. If you look at it that way, so if a lot of parents say it means I love you, it means I feel safe to tell you all about my favourite things. It is not meant yep. to be a two-way conversation. You do not have to ask questions or interrupt. That's interrupting. <laughs> um, yep. Autistic people make great lecturers and public speakers because... Professors. It's a monologue. History teachers. <laughs> it's an uh, info dump. It's yep. not just something little kids do about trains. An info dump is a way of, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> yep. You know, just talking about things that we love and not necessarily having it as a conversation. Yeah, I mean, I met a lot of um, teachers who are like history teachers and things like that that are autistic, mm -hmm. but it's because, as you say, it's an info dump. They are talking mm. about their their special interest and they're doing it for a living. So, like, what better way oh. <laughs> to yep. go through your life, right? <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and with passion. And I think some of the times, you know, Autistic ADHDs respond to passion, I think. Look, this is just a personal theory, but I feel like ADHD is when they're really you know, find school boring. There's nothing worse because I call ADHD the allergy to boredom. Like yep. if something's boring, I can't 
deal with it. I can't do it. I cannot. It's kind of painful too. Painful. It's like pulling teeth. It's just Mm. like I can't go and walk over to that item of clothing that's on the floor and just pick it up and put it away. I can't. It's not that I don't want to. I really want to, but I can't do it. I need dopamine. I need either Ritalin or to go for a walk or find some way of getting dopamine or I get my clients to work out what's in it for them. So actually talk themselves into things with yep. ADHD. Um, and I can't remember the point that I was going to make now about ADHD. <laughs> oh, yeah, passion. So when when someone's speaking from about a subject, teachers that have real passion for their subject seem to capture your neurodivergent kids who find school boring. I yep. just, I've got a theory about that. I haven't got evidence, but um, it seems to be, oh, I like this teacher. They're so into it. Um, if you can, if you, yeah, so I think ADHDs can make really good teachers, especially for other ADHDs <laughs> because I feel that's teachers true. with passion. Yeah. Do you think so? Yeah. I had, I had a science teacher like that. He wrote books on science stuff. Like he was really into um, space and things like that. Mm. And he did physics and chemistry and things like that to, um, during high school. And that was the only time I was really engaged in science mm. um, was when I had him as a teacher and any anyone else it was just boring but he was very yeah. animated and bored, very into it yeah yeah, if yeah. Just so, passing the time then I'm not into it if you can make me into it I'll get into yep. it if you can incorporate my special interests even more like I say teachers like they've got little kid who's into lizards and refuses a real PDA who refuses to do anything that's asked of them because they've been asked that's the whole PDA thing I say can you make your number line into a lizard story and then they're like oh lizards are involved right now i'm listening you know um, yeah. how to incorporate special interests and passion into the things to get the kids involved and and just even knowing that you know have you tried using their special interests to get them into this so that they're not um and, you know pda is a whole other thing um, it is, it is. <laughs> um yeah which we could talk about so pda the idea that I can't do it because you've asked me. It's not my idea anymore. Now I can't do it. <laughs> yep. Um, and then how to, you know, you've got to be so careful. Language, it all comes down to language. As soon as you say, come on, do this, no, not until then, all of these words trigger. Yep. And once you've heard them several thousand times, you just you get immune to being asked to doing things. Like I cannot do something you've asked me to do. So then it's all that. Um, let's go to the bathroom instead of brush your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. look, my toothbrush has all been set up for me with the paste on it. You know what? <laughs> I reckon I could do this now. You've made it easy for me. And then that's, yeah, managing PDA, the whole thing. Another thing my clients get gaslit about from professionals, they're like, yeah, we told the, the pediatrician they were PDA. And the pediatrician, I saw them doing this look and writing in their notes, thinks it's PDA. <laughs> and it's like, well, when are we going to sort of go from all of this stuff being theory to being recognised by professionals as real things? RSD, rejection sensitive dysphoria. Oh yeah. Like the number of us that have that and know that it's a real thing, you know. <laughs> I don't. I haven't yet met an ADHD. I've met autistic people that don't experience RSD, but ADHD, yep. you know, that sort of. It's very ADHD being, heavy. It's ADHD heavy, that sort of, well, they say 20,000 more negative messages by the age of 12, like stop doing that, sit still, put that away, concentrate, listen to me. Once you've had, 
you know, several thousand more times of being told off compared to other people, you just get that rejection sensitivity. It just builds and builds and builds to a trauma response to rejection. And that I call that something... ADHD propaganda. ADHD <laughs> propaganda. Oh, I love it. Oh, so there's all this new terminology, ADHD tax and <laughs> ADHD propaganda. Um, RSD, so I actually explain, so some of my clients, so speech pathology clients that come in and had a boy the other day and he was like in his early 20s and I shouldn't say boy as a man but to me he's a boy <laughs> and then he's, he's saying oh he got really worried that he'd offended me in the session and to the point where he actually contacted me afterwards to go I'm so sorry I'm so sorry and I'm like we need to talk about RSD <laughs> so next session I'm like right first of all it is impossible for you to offend me in a session okay second of all you have RSD and then we talked all about it we read about it we looked at it I just I just want I think as a clinician you want people to understand themselves before you can understand others like we're doing all this teaching neurotypical ways teaching neurotypical social skills I need to know who I am before I can work out how to get along with others you know I think that's so fundamental and that's a lot of OTs they teach they sometimes you know these sensory profiles and this person's are really sensory around um, touch they really love being hugged tightly and they're really sensitive to pain a little bit of pain really upset who's telling the child this though this is information's going to mom it's going to the psychologist yeah (laughs) person needs to know themselves you know fully so then you don't get the gaslit you're like you know I teach people to self-advocate and say look you know um oh someone says to you you're overreacting that's just a splinter it's like well actually it's not an overreaction. I've got really sensitive skin. It's so sensitive. I can feel the tags in my clothes and I have got a foreign object embedded <laughs> under my skin. This is a dead set emergency. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, the other thing speech pathologists used to do was this, um, how big is the problem? So you'd go, you know, I've got a splinter or my house is on fire, which is the bigger problem. And this is another form of gaslighting because it's like the splinter. <laughs> in that moment might actually feel more like a fully fledged panic the fire doesn't impact my physical being if i'm not actually in the house so therefore you know you've got to understand the autistic perspective might be really different to the neurotypical perspective you can understand objectively that the fire has a worse consequence but how it makes me feel in that moment might be really different to the neurotypical perspective so that whole how big is the problem we that used to be a, a speech pathology kind of intervention for autistic people to discuss how big a problem really is and again you've got to really look at both perspectives you can look at the consequences and be objective about it you've got to you can take these you can define them neuroaffirming that's right you can make Mm. something neuroaffirming that was written by neurotypicals and i i know people who've done that they've taken really ableist programs and managed to sort of bend them in all different directions and make them neurodiversity affirming and you know but Look, it's just a lot easier to take programs written by autistic people for <laughs> autistic people in the first place. Um, but again, you've got to consider the idea that the autistic speech pathologists are going to be better at understanding both perspectives and the neurotypical professionals have to work harder to understand the autistic perspective. And I've got neurotypical speechy friends who've taken programs written by neurotypicals and found it easier to bend those because it helps them because they're written from their perspective yep so yeah it's interesting because I was always like really against any program written by neurotypical but I've got to be open-minded to the fact that the neurotypical speech pathologists you know I need to understand this from this perspective and the autistic perspective and 
it might take longer to kind of, you know, get your head around that. So yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, open, to, I'm open to anything. I try not to be too. <laughs> it's like assessment questions, isn't it? That the uh, assessments yeah. are written by neurotypicals. I mean, NDIS mm. was created by neurotypicals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in mm. you got like your assessments and I've been following a lady. I can't remember her name right now, but she has started um, rewriting the questions for assessments like autism and ADHD and actually yeah. defining what they mean by the question. Like an mm. ADHD question was like, are you usually really, really late or really, really early? And it's like, okay, mm, depends. well, <laughs> what do you mean by that? And it's like, yeah. I, I might be on time, but yep. the things I had to do to make sure I was on time is not normal was hard <laughs> or your yeah, definition yeah, 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 of normal um yeah so I had to set you know, a five minute timer between every single thing I do in the morning to be on time yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly so they don't ask that question they just ask no. are you normally really early or really really late and it's like you know they really need to define what they mean by what they're mm. asking because it could change yeah. your answer um absolutely so, yeah yeah multi Multi-choice questions are a real thorn in the side for neurodivergent people because we think so outside of the box. You think all the way around the question. You think of all the possible things it could mean and then you don't know how to answer. This happens so often. Neurotypicals are sort of all the same way, all the same page maybe with that stuff. They're like, oh, are you always like, yep, I know how to answer that. Whereas we're like, hang on a second, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Um, (laughs) and and that's the thing is like very literal thinking too like just I had a full Mm. on tism moment yesterday when my best friend said to me oh um yeah so my brother just does markets now and he just you know sells dog shit and I'm like what she's like you know dog shit and I'm like dog poo and she's like no dog collars and, and i'm like oh yeah dog the dog shit. related shit yeah. yeah but i just automatically and she's got autism too but i just went straight to yeah. like the literal yeah. thinking even though that no, doesn't even make sense you told me that story <laughs> uh, like yeah i thought i didn't think that that was valuable but yeah <laughs> like That's for like hilarious. horse manure or like, yeah i don't know what's happening yeah. here but yeah and that other yeah. thing about like autistic people will often ask a hundred more questions to make sure that they understand. And that can look like incompetence, like in a workplace, like, why don't you understand? It's like, I need to check. So again, like with self-advocacy, I say, let people know I'm neurodivergent. This is the way my brain works. And I might need to ask you a hundred questions about this. If I'm not entirely sure what you mean, that's going to happen. Let me set that expectation for you, boss. Set the tone. <laughs> set the tone. This is what I need. And just for autistic people to know themselves, then you can know what to ask for. Then you can know what to, how not to get um, bullied, gaslit, all these things that come up. Like for a lot of people, they're like, I want to understand neurotypical people. And some people never really will, okay? So I say to them, when you have a neurotypical person come up to you and say, and not that it, you have to build a lot of confidence to do this, of course, but, you know, I've got kids at school that say a neurotypical person came up and didn't know what to say to them. I'm like, okay, why don't you just let them know when, if you feel comfortable, I'm neurodivergent, so sometimes I don't know what to say, you know, when you come up. So can you just, like, just let me know? And I, and I know you might do that very differently depending on the circumstances. You might not feel comfortable to do that at all. But at some point, it's just... To remain unmasked in neurotypical friendships, in neurotypical relationships, in neurotypical workplaces, you have to let them know what you need. And when communications break down, instead of just going, oh, they've just offended me so much and I don't know what I've done, say, look, sometimes when I say things, people get offended, I don't actually know why. 
just let people transparency (laughs) right and then and having someone who's supportive go into the neurotypical workplace i should actually explain that to bosses and so on before you go in there so you're not just you know fed to the wolves and say if they don't understand understand their perspective and let them know your perspective but again like what can you do to meet halfway let the autistic person be part of that solution and even little kids with these um so-called bad behaviors which i call pain um is um you know the this whole uh, ross green the cpa method for you know your real pda kids he's got this method which is a great method some of his terminologies work he's working on getting up to date with the neurofirming terminology but it's all about getting the kid involved in the solution so you've got this kid who keeps doing x y and z it's disrupting the class it's doing this and that how do we really connect with that child, understand what's wrong? And actually, you know what? They can be part of the solution. So why do you do that? Why are you distracting them? Because I'm confused. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm distressed. You know, they might not have all this language yet, but you start to be able to connect with this child and appreciate that their perspective is not what you thought. They don't yeah. want to disrupt the class and upset their their colleagues and upset the teacher they're distressed and there's something wrong and we need to get to the bottom of that and understand sensory stuff could it be you know the noise of the classrooms driving me nuts I can't even hear the teacher auditory processing all sounds sound the same to me I can't tell the teacher's voice over the other sounds so many reasons it could be that we have to break down it's humanizing that situation instead yeah. of just looking at it from like a, what is wrong with your perspective. Mm. It's trying to, to actually work out a solution that can work for everybody. You can negotiate right. them if, they, if they, they're being heard. It mm. means that, you know, it's a two-way conversation, a two-way street then, and you can teach them all about compromise and, okay, well, we can't do this, yeah. but we could do a little bit of this in here. Would that help? And, you know, yeah. kind of brainstorming together as a unit instead of just kind of taking it upon yourself to yeah. think that you know what's best for that person because, That's I mean, right. it's not, it doesn't work like that. But what would doesn't you say, like or why would you say your profession is so important? Oh, uh, look, this speech pathologists are sometimes the very frontline intervention for early intervention autism so now autism is getting diagnosed all over the place it's it's getting a lot of funding from ndis because they realize the value of early intervention which is valuable for kids with these disabilities and speech pathology often comes up first because parents want their child to talk and if there's taking longer to talk or they're just old or guest old, i'm not sure you say it language processes that's kids who speak from lines off the tv or echolalic which means that they've got another step towards understanding that individual words mean one thing and then you can put them together and make sentences you have to there's new ways of intervening even with the the guest old language communicators to break down those long uh phrases into shorter phrases so speech pathologists really come first for people who are non-speaking um we provide other options such as um, AAC which is like using a an iPad with software on it that you can talk with so that someone's needs and can, can they can communicate communication is a human right speech pathologists end up being often the very first people after maybe your pediatrician that parents and children will see when they're first diagnosed or even before they're diagnosed so it's so important for speech pathologists to start off with the right language language that's affirming language that makes their clients feel safe language that stops clients from masking even for speech pathologists our clients often their parents are autistic too right like there's this you know two neurotypical people don't have autistic kids often i mean i'm sure it's possible but 
So the parents might be undiagnosed autistic, the kids are autistic. You just need to be, if you're starting to go, I'm really sorry to tell you this child's autistic, I'm so sorry. If you're starting to, if starting off like that, <laughs> like this is the worst thing in the world. That's not a great yeah. start. So like, you know what, this might be disabling. You might need to parent really differently, but your child has every chance of being successful, loved, an amazing person. They're not different now that they're autistic. You can't assume the worst for them. We're going to assume the absolute best for them. And I'm going to teach you how to parent and bond with your child and make them as the best person they can possibly be. And, you know, some of us are like Greta Thunberg and Hannah Gadsby. And, you know, I, mean, I, I mean, you don't want to set the tone that there's good autism, bad autism. You just say your child, we're going to make them be the absolute best that they can possibly be. Um, and we're going to work together. It's going to be great and you know, um, there are so many autistic people helping us on this journey now who are writing programs such as the Sea Bridges program is a social skills program for five to eight-year-olds, you know, written by autistic people for autistic people. There's Autism Level Up talks about how to manage energy, the spoon theory. There's so many autistic-led theories that will really help these families to navigate this space. And it's so affirming because we're looking to the autistic community for our guidelines and for that lived experience over research evidence where research hasn't necessarily asked the right questions or included the right people. So, yeah, I, I, I feel like, you know, diagnosis day is not doomsday and that is very much pushed upon us ah. from the get go that it's it's a bad yeah. thing. But well, um, like, it should be like, your child is autistic. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. might think outside the square. They might be super creative. They might do things in a way that no one's ever done before. And you're going to love it. You're going to love it if you're allowed exactly. to love it. If you're allowed to. You get me? Parenting is harder. It is hard work, parenting and advocating. You have to be on the ball. You can't assume that schools and everyone's got your back. You've got to get in there and you've got to advocate for your kids. And that's one of the things that I really try to do with my Spoons advocacy is if people contact me and they want me to get into their schools, talk to their teachers, talk to parents, um, tell them how to parent in an affirming way, please feel free to jump on my website and fill in a form and I'll get back to you. may not be the next day, ADHD, but it'll be within a week. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, that's what I really want to do is help people navigate this this space, this diagnosis, this space, and um, to do it with that person's, you know, to make that that person the best person they can be. That's awesome, Kath. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> it's been great, you're a wealth Jamie. of knowledge. We're going to have oh, to get you look, back because we could just oh, chat all day. <laughs> I'm glad that you like the side notes and the, the tangents and the different ways that I talk. But this is the thing: it's like you know, sometimes those side conversations are the best ones. Yeah, the, <laughs> the totally, ones that and go the, off the beaten track. We love yeah, that. Yeah, ADHD conversations. It's just oh, like it's too, if you got too. Yeah, exactly. It's cheese yeah, we, we were doing it before the show started. We were talking all over the place. It was great. I loved it. I feel like I've already known you for, for years. Yeah, <laughs> this is what happens yeah, every it, time you meet someone near an emergent. Definitely, definitely. You've got to find your people. But you thank you so much tribe. for your time. And, oh, it's um, been such a pleasure to let me info dump on my special interest. <laughs> no worries. I think autism and ADHD becomes your special interest, once, especially oh. once you're diagnosed. Yeah, and you realise how awesome it is. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Right. Thanks, awesome. Katie. I'll chat to you again soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.